stories that have negative endings, uh, those those negative endings can have a number of different effects. For one, we all know a negative ending can still be incredibly powerful, poignant, right? Like who, who can forget the ending of Old Yeller, right? I, I don't want to spoil the ending for you in case you haven't seen that, but I do want to advise you, don't get attached to the dog, okay? Uh, I'll let you... Discover what that means on your own. Uh, same thing with, you know, negative endings can be powerful. Where the red fern grows about killed me in fourth grade. Uh, of mice and men, saving private Ryan, Braveheart. We could do this all day. You ever see the movie My Girl with Macaulay Culkin, if you're about my age? Um, that was 30 years ago, and Rachel has yet to fully recover from the ending of, of that movie. But sometimes a negative ending can have a different impact. Sometimes a movie or a story, a book, it can just be so emotionally heavy and dark. It's not like poignant. We just need it to be over. Uh, the Passion of the Christ is obviously a story of the greatest, a movie of the greatest story ever told. But for many of us, when we were watching that, we just kind of needed it to be over. Schindler's List was like that. Like, great story, but I, I need to be let off the emotional hook, so to speak. And then there are other times where a story is so dark or so bad, you just want it to be in, just, you just want it to end be, just because it's not good. You ever started a book, started a movie, and decided, I, you've committed, I'm going to hang in to, to in here till the end, but I just want it to be over? Well, we're going to read an ending today. Um, it, it is the ending of our book of 1 Samuel, but... Um, First and Second Samuel initially were one, one story, um, and we're going to treat it like that. We're going to keep going. The ending I'm talking about is the ending of the story of King Saul. King Saul is not going to make it through the end of our passage today, and the ending of the life of King Saul has an effect, I think, somewhere between my second and third examples. It's not poignant. It's not powerful. This ain't old yeller, kids. It's more like, can this be over already? I mean, personally, as I read through this story, I'm ready to sort of be done with Saul because it's just so, so, so dark, so heavy. So this morning, where we are going to pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 31, because we've been bouncing back and forth, a Saul chapter, a David chapter, a Saul chapter, a David chapter, we're really picking up after chapter 28, Saul has just gone to visit a spiritist or a medium or a witch. Uh, he knows this battle is coming, and he, he turned to the occult to try to get some information. How might I possibly survive this? Well, he won't, and he was told as much. And so where we pick up today, this is the story, the record of a defeat uh, that the Philistines handed to Israel, but probably more importantly, it's the story of, 
of the death of King Saul. So let's read this. We'll read the whole thing. It's not a very long chapter. So 1 Samuel chapter 31 begins this way. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit Saul, and he was badly wounded by the Philistine archers. So Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. Verse 5. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with Saul. That's how Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel or the people of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan... When they saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. And the Philistines came in and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, verse 9. They cut off Saul's head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the, houses, uh, to the house of their idols and to the people. They put Saul's weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beit-shan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men there arose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beit-shan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted for seven days. There's our cheery little story for this morning. Um, our author doesn't beat around the bush. He dives right in to telling us about this beating the Philistines deliver upon Israel. It's just a complete rout. Um, he mentions just briefly, though we will pause... That one casualty of that battle, sadly, was David's best friend and Saul's oldest son, Jonathan. Jonathan was a good and honorable man, maybe the best dude we've met in this book. He was a, a man of a courageous faith. Uh, we, we probably couldn't write a better eulogy or obituary, though David will try. Tune in next week. But we probably couldn't write a better one than something we've already read in this book. This was back in chapter 18, where we read about Jonathan. Jonathan made a covenant with David, for Jonathan loved David as much as he loved his own life. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with the rest of his gear, including his sword and his bow, and even his belt. Jonathan was a, the crown prince of Israel. He was the oldest son of the king. From a human perspective, he was next in line 
to be king of Israel. But Jonathan loved the Lord more than he loved his own plans and his own future. Jonathan came to understand that God had decided David was going to be the next king and not him. And so Jonathan made it his desire that David become the next king instead of him. In, in these two verses, what we, read, what we read when we studied those, it's a picture of, da- of Jonathan communicating to David as clearly as he can, you got next. I want you to be king. He took off the stuff that identified him as the crown prince, his robe, his sword, that kind of stuff, and he put it on his friend as a way to say, if God wants you to be best king or next king, buddy, and he does, then I want you to be the next king. And he made promises to David, I'll be right there beside you. Now, Jonathan's dad thought he was an idiot for having such feelings. But Jonathan knew two things that Saul never learned. One, the revealed will and the sovereign wills of God cannot be changed no matter what we do. And second, it is way better to just dive into a, to agreeing with and working towards seeing God's will come to pass than it is to find yourself fighting against what God says is best and what God promises will happen. As Dr. Dale Davis wrote about Jonathan, I like this. He says, Jonathan was a man who laid aside a kingdom he could not have because he much preferred a kingdom he could not lose. We can't pause too long because our author doesn't. Our author just mentions Jonathan's death very quickly and then moves on to describing uh, the death of Saul on the same day. The way it happened, this, this route uh, snowballed very quickly against Israel. Saul suddenly knew the route was on. Before he could run away, though, he was hit with at least one arrow from, Philist- from Philistine arrows, so they got pretty close. Saul understood he was too wounded to get away, and Saul very badly did not want to fall into the hands of bloodthirsty Philistines, for good reason. Ancient history is filled with accounts, with stories of what Ancient peoples did with enemy kings they captured alive. The Bible's got several of those stories. They are not pretty. I won't tell you what Saul does here is right, because it isn't. I'll just tell you I get it. Saul asks his armor bearer, don't let them get me. You kill me. He's like, no way, I'm not killing the king. So Saul does himself in. His armor bearer follows suit in verse 5. Verse 7 is, is kind of interesting when, when the people who lived in that region, Israelite people, when they take stock of the situation, when they see this route, they become war refugees. They, they walk away from their homes, all their possessions. They leave their towns on foot and just go wherever they could find immediate safety. Like some 14 or 15 million Ukrainians Right now, 
This is a refugee situation. And that's the story of how Saul and his sons came to die. Now, before we move on from considering their deaths, I want you to consider how you would answer this question. Whose death was more of a tragedy? Jonathan's or Saul's? It's pretty easy to answer that by saying Jonathan's death was more of a tragedy. It sure makes me feel more sad. You know what? You know what I want to see as I'm reading this story? I want to see David become king. But I want to see his buddy Jonathan right there with him. Don't you want to see that? This is what Jonathan said. When you become king, I'll be right there happy that you're king instead of me. And we don't get to see it. But listen, the day of Jonathan's death very quickly became the greatest day of Jonathan's existence yet. Because this happened 3,000 years ago, I'm confident very quickly from an eternal perspective after this moment, I believe David and Jonathan were reunited. And I can't say this for sure, but it would be just like God to let David and Jonathan serve side by side in the future kingdom of an even greater king, that they will both be happy as king instead of them. From a temporal earthly perspective, Jonathan's Jonathan's death is tragic. From an eternal perspective, it's it's victory. But Saul's death... Now, that's a tragedy. Do you know, as soon as Saul died, the fact that he had been king during his life did him not one lick of good. The only thing that mattered after Saul died was that he had never made the Lord his king. And I want to, I want to encourage you to consider who you are more like right now in that aspect. Because that is coming for every single one of us. When we die and we stand before the Lord, the only thing that will matter is, was I just trying to get what I wanted out of life like Saul? Or had I made someone greater than me my king? What you do with the real king, Jesus Christ, will make all the difference in your eternity. And there is no other way that your death can be victory than if you believe He suffered your defeat before the hands of God already. Jonathan's death seems more tragic, but don't mourn for Jonathan. Not now. Way more tragic than either Jonathan's death or Saul's is Saul's like death after death. Let's move on. Verses 8 through 10. They really show us how big of a rout this was that the Philistines delivered upon Israel. Because we're told in these verses that the next day, so the day after the battle's over, 
all these Israeli soldiers who died are still lying where they fell. And that just didn't happen. It didn't happen for a number of reasons. One, like from a modern perspective, the casualty counts in really ancient battles weren't what we like think of. It's not like these guys were charging machine gun nests, right? In the ancient world, there was, many, there was much more like we're being overrun, everyone run away. There was much more of that than there was large-scale slaughter. But we can tell this was large-scale slaughter because a, a bunch of guys are just laying around. Nobody stuck around. Nobody could bury the dead. They didn't even have enough guys left to get the king's body out of there. And so as the Philistines come to loot the dead soldiers, they really hit the jackpot. They find King Saul and his sons, and they decapitate King Saul's body, and they take different parts of him and different parts of his stuff back to Philistia to different places to shout what we're told is the good news of their victory. You know, it sends a pretty clear message. If you, were, if you were an ancient Philistine soldier and you made it back home after the battle and somebody said, hey, how'd it go? And you hold up the severed head of the other side's king. Like, it's a pretty clear indication things went well. Like, we're not just telling stories here. And special note is made that Saul's stuff and the good news it announced made it inside the the pagan temples of, of the Philistines into the, the temples of like they're at the, the asterisk, the, just the different uh, gods. We met a Dagon, one of their gods earlier in the book. Um, they went in there basically to worship their God and thank him for beating up the God of Israel. Um, it's been a while in our book since we said this, but in the ancient world, they, they saw warfare as happening like on two levels. The humans were duking it out down here. But in the unseen realm, the gods of each nation would have been fighting and made the best god win. And so in their minds, their god just beat up Israel's god. Would you call that mocking the one true god? I would. Now I want to pause there and consider something else. Because... Very clearly, the Philistines are mocking Israel's God. He's a loser. He's weak. But the Bible's clear in another place. Check this out. Do not be deceived, Galatians 6 says. God is not, and that can be translated, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. But we can go to places in the Bible, like where we're at today, and see people very obviously mocking God. And Galatians 6-7 does not say, hey, someday God won't be mocked. He says, it says, right now, God ain't being mocked. So how could both those things be true? And it's important, because as you look around today, are there people mocking God? Are there people mocking that what he said about what is best is old-fashioned and stupid and all that other stuff? 
So how can God, people mock God if God can't be mocked? That's true in a couple different ways. First, I want to illustrate this this way. The first way that this can be true. That is Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury is the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He is six feet nine inches tall. He weighs 270 pounds and he has never been beaten. Just a terrifying human being. This is Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito is four feet ten inches tall. He's 77 years old. He once was cast as the penguin in a Batman movie largely because of the striking resemblance. I don't know what Danny DeVito weighs, but I do know if he got in a little fracas with Tyson Fury, it would not matter. Is there a big difference in stature and power and height between Tyson Fury and Danny DeVito? Well, let's imagine that someone like Danny DeVito began to mock someone like Tyson Fury. I mean, really laying on, telling what he was going to do to him and how you're nothing and your mama wears army boots and all that stuff, just the, just the worst. Would it be reasonable for Tyson Fury to look down at Danny DeVito and decide, I don't think I'm going to be bothered by this. What's the point? Of course. So one way this can be true. I think this could be said at the same time, Danny DeVito could be mocking Tyson Fury and Tyson Fury could not be mocked because he decided not to be. The difference in stature and power and importance between the God of the universe and the Philistines is infinitely larger than the gap between Tyson Fury and Danny DeVito. That God decides not to respond immediately every time someone decides to mock him probably shouldn't surprise us. We also should be very thankful because God is mocked by every single sin we sin. You know that? Every one of my sins, and there are many, is me deciding either God doesn't see, God doesn't care, God won't know, God doesn't matter. I also want you to pay attention to the last sentence of Galatians 6, 7. A man reaps what he sows. That God doesn't respond immediately when he is mocked doesn't mean God won't respond one day. It just means God is patient. He's slow to anger. Praise God. See, one reason God wasn't mocked, God doesn't like live in time. 50 or 60 or 70 years is nothing to God. And God knows all of those Philistines that ran into those temples holding a piece of Saul's armor or a part of his body mocking him. God knows one day they're going to stand before me and they will realize straight away I'm very much not defeated. God's, God's power 
And God's greatness is never threatened by human mocking. But again, the only hope we have of standing before him one day is that Jesus Christ was mocked in our place. That Jesus Christ suffered the wrath we deserve for our mocking of God so that God has emptied out his wrath when we stand there. He really does have to be our substitute or we will share the same fate as those Philistines. Then the book of Samuel ends with kind of a strange little story, honestly. As word travels about this terrible defeat and what's happened to Saul and Saul's body and that it's of his sons, they're like hanging on a wall. Uh, How's that for an art exhibit? Um, Somewhere, the residents of Jabesh Gilead risk their lives. They, They walk all night. This is like a commando mission right into Philistine enemy territory. They risk their lives just to get Saul's body. It's not like Saul can pay them back. Why would they do this? It's admirable. But why would they do this? Well, it's been a long time, but King Saul has a long history with the residents of Jabesh Gilead. If you remember back when Saul first got the job as king, Saul didn't want the job as king. He was hiding. They had to drag him to his inauguration. And then he just went home back to the farm. He was literally farming one day when he received word that there was this Ammonite guy named Nahash the Ammonite, which is the Hebrew word for snake. The The snake of Ammon had besieged a city. Guess which city that was? Jabesh Gilead. And the Holy Spirit came upon Saul, and he's like, all right, enough of this. And Saul, really for the first time since Joshua, united the entire nation of Israel militarily, and they marched on Jabesh Gilead and rescued Jabesh Gilead from uh, Nahash the Ammonite. And there's a lesson in here. The the people of Jabesh never forget the good that Saul did, even though it was followed by plenty and plenty and plenty of not good. I think like us as a group, we as individuals and us as a larger group of Americans, man, I think we can learn something from these folks of Jabesh Gilead. This seems overly simplistic to say, but do you know, like good deeds are good deeds no matter who does them, and bad deeds are bad deeds no matter who does them. Do you agree with that? Sounds simple. But listen, we're not very good at recognizing that. I will tell you, just like politically speaking, I mourn already. For when our next president, former president dies, or current president dies, if I'm being honest, but that's a story for a different day. That was uncalled for, and I shouldn't have said that. Uh, But I do, I mourn for the next time one of our former presidents dies. You know why? Because I don't think we have any ability to be like the men of Jabesh. You know what? 
there was that man, that man served as our king and he did something really good and we will not forget no matter what bad followed. And pay attention as we move forward because David's going to do the same thing to a man who tried to kill him personally for years and years and years. The people of Jabesh Gilead were courageously gracious. We have this real tendency that's become a part of our uh, nationality and it seeps into our families and our conversations where if people are on our side, the bad they do isn't actually bad. And if people aren't on our side, whatever good they do can be explained away. Because people are either all evil or they're all good. But turns out we're people. And we're complicated. And it doesn't have to be in politics. It can be in a different denomination. Somebody that has a a bit of a different uh, theological stripe. It can be how I view the good or the bad of my children. I long for courageous graciousness. And I mean courageous, because right now, if you say anything good about an opponent, guess what happens? You get labeled as one of the opponents. And that can be in our social group. It can be in our family with the black sheep. It can be in our politics. It's in our churches. We're shot through with this stuff. The people of Jabesh remember the good that Saul did. So will David come back the next couple of weeks. Um, If you have an author that you like, a book that you read that helped you in a younger time, and you discover later that that author has fallen off the theological pickle boat, or whatever, listen, you can still be helped by someone, by, by, by a book. It's okay. You don't have to burn it all. Anyway, that's a little side lesson from this one. There's our passage about the death of Saul and his sons. Aside from what we've already learned, I want to leave you with two lessons that I think this passage and really the life of Saul teaches us. The first one has to do with the sovereignty of God and the existence of evil people. This story and Saul's life in general reminds us that God sees and God uses the evil that God allows It's easy for us to see this and learn this lesson. Because we can read of Israel's defeat. This is a terrible, awful story. Right? I mean, you don't have, uh, you don't have a painting or any calligraphy in your house with any of today's verses on your wall, right? And they cut off his head, right? That's on your, it's got a landscape hanging up in your kitchen. No, it's awful stuff. But there's good in here. 
it's easy for us to see the good because God predicted this ahead of time. We can go back in the book and see a couple of different places where God said this is what's going to happen. All right, uh, dead prophet Samuel just told King Saul, hey, tomorrow they're going to kill you and all your sons. We knew this was coming. So we, and we know the rest of the story if we've read ahead. Right? This is how God is moving things along to get David to be king. This is part of God's redemptive plan to bring the Christ. So none of this were the events of Israel spinning outside of God's control, that evil had taken over, that somehow the Philistines caught God napping. We, none of us have any of those thoughts. But listen, if you lived in Jezreel, if you lived in Hebron during that day, and you saw the Philistines coming over the hill, like carrying Saul's head, if you realize your husband's probably dead, your dad, your son. Maybe you might be tempted to think, maybe, maybe our God couldn't save us. Maybe, maybe this has spun out of control. Maybe the world is ending. Read, we read passages like this and we're comforted by the fact that God knew this was coming ahead of time. This was all part of God's plan to bring his perfect plans into motion. And God uses evil to get it done. The Philistines in this passage, you know what they were really able to do? Exactly what God wanted them to do. They thought they were defeating God. They were serving God because God's ready for Saul to be out and David to be in. So the Philistines were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. That's helpful for us today, because I don't know if you've noticed, but there's still evil afoot. And as we look around, we don't, we don't have the rest of the book of our lives or the book of America, but nothing is going to happen that God hasn't seen coming. No evil exists that God hasn't allowed, seen, and used to get exactly what he wants accomplished accomplished. Hang in there, O Christian. Right? The good king is coming. And everything else we live through is a part of God's perfect, perfect plan to get us there. The second thing I think the, that Saul's life teaches us, and this is probably, I, I think, the major lesson from the whole life of Saul Saul's life just teaches us about the dangers of pride. Saul of Benjamin was an incredibly gifted, talented, blessed man. Do you remember why God picked Saul? Saul was the tallest and handsomest man in all of Israel. Right? Mr. Israel, 1100 B.C. He was wealthy. He seems to have, a, have had a capable military mind. He was a good leader. He was given literally the highest office the nation had ever had. He was the first king. 
He was but being having all the gifts and talents and abilities and blessings in the world ultimately mean nothing if they are divorced from a heart that pursues after God and what he says is best. And Saul used everything he had been given for prideful purposes. Saul was always all about Saul. That's pride. All pride is is self-focus. Pride is when I get stuck thinking about me. What I want, what would feel better to me, how I can get other people to view me more positively. I want other people to have a slightly exaggerated view of me. So what do I need to collect? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to have? What do I need to do so that other people think of me the way I want other people to think of me? That's pride. And Saul fell into a very easy trap. Saul tried to use pride to get what only humility can actually deliver. Saul tried to use pride to get what only humility can deliver. We can fall into that trap, and we very often do. In the book of James, we read this. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What's grace? That's one of the five churchiest words of all time. We, we use it all the time here. What's grace? Grace is when someone gets more than they deserve, right? Well, check out what James is saying here. God opposes the proud. Now, there's a problem we don't need, right? But the people who actually get more than they deserve are the humble. Hang on to that one for a second. Jesus says in Matthew, whoever exalts himself is going to wind up being humbled, but whoever humbles himself will actually wind up being exalted. Now, I know that's true in, a, in an uh, eschatological sense. I know it's true that if I humble myself and understand I am not good enough to gain eternal life through my righteousness, I need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So I humble myself and I accept Christ. I believe in Him. And in that sense, I will be exalted with Him later. But this is true in real life. This is true in our earthly lives. And I think I can prove and illustrate what I mean. We often ask pride to give us what only humility can deliver. little exercise here. I want you to think of something. I want you to think of a person you know personally, not some famous person. Someone you know personally that you really believe is an honorable person. Someone that you really feel like, like at their funeral, people should say awesome stuff about this person and actually be telling the truth while they do it. Who is someone that you just really think highly of? Honorable person. You got somebody in mind? Now, if we would go around the room and collect all of our answers, here's what we would find. This wouldn't be true in every single case because there are prideful people writing down 
who, who their ideals are. But we would find overwhelmingly the people that we honor are humble people. We would not have a list that is made up primarily of people who have the most, have been the most places, drive the nicest cars, um, have the best degrees, any of those things. You know what kind of lists we would have? We would have people who love others well. We would have people who put, tend to put others in front of, their, of themselves. We would have a list of people who are servants. And you know what that illustrates? That illustrates that the, the people who exalt themselves, we wind up eventually not even thinking that much of them. But the people who humble themselves, they're the ones we wind up thinking much of. Does that make sense? But here's what we try to do. When we want other people to think highly of us, guess what we tend to use? Pride. Even though, see, we want, we want people, we want more than we deserve. I want you to think of me more highly than I deserve to be thought of. So I'll try to impress you with being the smartest guy in the room, with having more, being more, doing more, accomplishing more, all that stuff. I'll try to use pride to get you to think more highly of me. When in the long run, we just illustrated, it doesn't even work. The only thing that works is forgetting about what people think of me. Deciding to put God, to love God and love others well. That's it. Love God and love others well. Pursue after God's heart. And you know what happens at the end of, at the end of things like for free? If you do that well and consistently by the end of your life, guess what? Guess what? People will think more highly of you than you deserve. It's crazy. Real humility gives us what pride promises and can't deliver. And we know that to be true. But pride gives us those quick little, almost short, short circuit shortcuts. that just never delivered. That's the lesson of Saul. Don't miss it. Saul was a guy, you know why he didn't want to be king? Because he wanted to do just what he wanted to do. Pride. Once Saul became king, guess what he wanted? Well, I want people to think I'm the best king ever. And it led to paranoia. Oh no, people think more highly of David than they think of me. And he couldn't stand it. So I got to kill David. Why? Because people will like me more. Seems ridiculous, but that was his thought process. Pride distorts, deceives, and dishonors. Pride really does come before the fall. But don't take my word for it. Take his. Let's pray. And then we'll finish. Father God, um, we know your word is true. We know you give grace to the humble and you oppose the proud. We know if we will humble ourselves, you will take care of our exaltation 
but God, we get so easily stuck in self-focus and pride. So Lord, help us uh, humble ourselves. Focus on loving you and loving other people. If no one ever notices, that's okay. You'll keep your promise. You'll keep your promise. God, make us humble servants because it makes us like Jesus. The one who has already suffered on our behalf. We love you, Lord. Thank you for his example of humility where everything he did was for your glory and for the benefit of others always consistently. And he has now been exalted to your right hand and we can't wait to see him if we'll humble ourselves and accept him as our savior. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand up and we will finish.